This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. If you'll look at the chart, there's an order of scripture down in the bottom of it that we'll follow those, those particular scriptures. We might inject something that's there, but uh, not there. Notice the last two columns, it says rest are on the front because the other scriptures in the first five columns are all on the back side typed out for you. And uh, the rest of them are embedded on the front in the outline. I'll direct you to those appropriate places there at the right time. And you'll be able to read these scriptures off with me. If you want to look these up in your Bible or electronic device, please do that. Not trying to take the place of the Bible but to make uh, things a little bit easier for you to get around in so we can move quickly as we study. There on the back side, I'll introduce the thoughts from Acts 8 at verse 5 through 13. Acts 8, 5 to 13. The Bible says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because in a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. This is not the passage that we're going to study today, but I wanted to introduce some things with it. If we can get an idea of Palestine, here's the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River that, that empties into the Dead Sea, and over about right in here is the city of Jerusalem. Uh, right up here about this section is Samaria. This is where Philip is in the story that we've read, is Samaria. And he's gone up there to take the gospel because Jesus had said in Acts 1 and 8, that ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and into the uttermost part of the earth. And now it's time to take that gospel to Samaria, just like the Lord wanted. Over here is the Mediterranean Sea with its coastline and Egypt down in here. And uh, I want you to notice though, Philip is up here in Samaria and he's having a wonderful work. But now in verse 26, the Lord wants him in a different location. So let's drop down and read verse 26 of Acts 8 and read through verse 40. The Bible says, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, ready, saith the prophet, then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Esaias and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. 
The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. The book of Acts was written by Luke. It's a history of the early church. It's, a, it's called Acts of the Apostles. It's a, a history of the work of the apostles and the early evangelists there in the first century church. It's a very valuable book for us. Valuable for everybody, valuable for preachers and valuable for sinners and for those that are workers in the kingdom. It's just a valuable book. Because in this book are found conversion examples of how men and women were converted under the preaching of the apostles and evangelists there in the early church. So it's very valuable for that. And if I might illustrate the value of it, Years ago in the 1800s when the Restoration Movement, that is the old movement to get back to New Testament Christianity, when that was well underway, Brother Alexander Campbell was having trouble. You see, he was only baptizing about 25 people a year. And Campbell just wasn't having much, much success. The gospel was very slow work. But he'd heard of a preacher named Walter Scott, and he'd never met Scott, never heard him preach. And Scott was just having great success. He was baptizing about a thousand people a year. Campbell suspected maybe Scott was watering something down or changing something, and he, he thought, well, I'm going to go hear this man and see what he's doing. He's baptizing a lot of people out here. He found out that Scott was preaching these conversion examples in Acts. That's why they're there. That's why they're written for us as good tools for us. And so Campbell started preaching the examples himself and started having a lot better success in his work. And the church started growing and flourishing, see. They, uh, the, the same can be true of us. And that's one reason I wanted to study these today is to encourage us toward evangelism. And the only way I can do that is in the assembly of God's people. I can get the message out a little bit better that way. Our young people need these stories. So I don't... I don't apologize for preaching these simple things this morning. They'll always be needed. There'll never be a time when we don't need to study those together. Our children need them. They need them continually and constantly, and they need to know how to use them. And you might say, well, I've heard many sermons on this particular subject. You may well have, but can you present the material that's in it? Could you sit down and lead someone in a discussion of these things and explain this story to them in detail. That's what I hope that we can accomplish today a little bit better. I want to do a thorough study of, of the subject with you. Now, I'm, I'm not going to try to please anybody in how I give this. Obviously, we can't do that. So if what we learn here today differs from what some church teaches or some preacher 
then we have nothing to apologize about because these, this story's been here 2,000 years. It was here long before any of us. And so we're just going to examine it like it's written. There are five main characters in the story, and I want to take each one of them and look at them in detail a little bit and raise five questions that we're going to answer from the Bible. Number one, what did the angel of the Lord do in this story? What was his role in this man's conversion? Number two, what did the Holy Spirit do? What was his role in this conversion? Number three, what did the preacher, Philip the Evangelist, do? Number four, what did the Ethiopian man himself do toward his own conversion? And number five, what did the Lord do for the man? We'll answer those five things from Scripture when we do that. Hopefully, we'll have a very thorough study behind us, and there'll be a lot of details that will be a profit to us. So I want to take up the first question is, what did the angel of the Lord do in this story? What was his role in this man's conversion? What do angels do for us in the way of salvation and bringing salvation to us? The short answer to the question is, he sent Philip to the work that Philip was to do. But, but I want to put this in the negative with you this morning and raise this question. Put it this way. What did the angel of the Lord not do? What did he not do? And the answer is, he did nothing to the man to be converted. He did not go to him. He did not appear to him. He did not speak in some vision or dream or still voice in the night. He simply went to the preacher, never went to the man to be converted. Have you ever wondered, like I have at times in the past, why God doesn't use angels to preach? We've got Philip up here. He's up in Samaria. Here's Gazed right down here. And there's a road that leads from Gaza up to Jerusalem. And uh, Philip's up here in a populated area and he's having great success. This is a deserted area down here. There's nothing here. And yet the angel goes to the man that's going to be the preacher. He doesn't go to the man at Jerusalem, this Ethiopian man who's to be converted. Why? God has millions of angels, brethren. Why doesn't he send them out to preach? I mean, they could appear anywhere in an instant of time. Can you imagine if God unleashed millions of angels around this earth, how quickly the gospel could get to every creature on earth today in our generation? Everyone could hear it very quickly. But God has chosen not to do that. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 7, there on the back, you have a scripture. Paul, uh, in the earlier verses, has referred to the gospel as a treasure. Paul said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So God see, saw fit to give this treasure, the gospel, to earthen vessels, to weak people like you and I. Maybe God is thinking if, uh, if somebody's visited by an angel and they teach him and tell him about Jesus, that uh, you'd have somebody giving credit and saying, well, I was visited, I had a heavenly messenger appear to me. One might say, well, Gabriel came to me, and another said, well, I had Michael. And they might get to comparing the, the, the rank of these angels and different things. I don't know what God had in mind, but God wanted glory to go to him. And so he put this gospel with weak people like me and you, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us, that God gets the glory, see, when weaklings like us carry his word. Angels have not been charged with preaching the gospel. That's not their task. Positively, then, what did the angel do? And the, the answer is that he was sent to 
the preacher Philip. In Acts 8 and 26, he had a brief message. He said to Philip up here in Samaria, Rise, go toward the south, under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. So his task then was to send the preacher to the work that he was to be done. And I want you to notice the effect it had upon Philip. The Bible says that Philip arose and went. He got up right then and, and got on the mission because that's what the Lord told him to do. Now, let's understand something. Philip's up here in a city, populated area, and he's having great success. We read there in Acts 8 that, uh, that when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. He's got the church established here. It's growing. It's flourishing. Men and women are responding to the gospel. And now the, the angel tells him to go down here to this road that runs between Jerusalem and Gaza, which the Bible says is desert. Now when it calls it desert, don't think of sand dunes and cactus. It's a deserted area. There's nothing down here. No one lives in this region. And Philip didn't argue with the angel. He didn't say to him, now why, why in the world would you take me from a population center and send me down here to a deserted area where no one lives? He didn't make that argument. He didn't say to the angel, as some preachers might today, who's going to pay the bill? Hey, I might have to stop in some village and spend the night. I may have lodging to pay for. I might, uh, I might need to stop in a village and buy some bread and eat on the way down there. This was a pretty good journey on foot. But he never raised any of those questions. Evidently, Philip believed the Lord would send him to the work he wanted done and that he would take care of his needs while he was there. And so he arose and obeyed the Lord. And I want you to notice something, that when the angel ends his work, the man to be converted has never been contacted. He knows nothing about this. In fact, he is still at Jerusalem and Philip's up at Samaria. And very likely, Philip starts out toward the south before this man ever leaves Jerusalem. And he knows nothing about the appearance of the angel. That ends the work of the angel. And his task was to put the preacher on the way to the work that he was to be involved in. The second question I want to raise, what did the Holy Spirit do in this man's conversion? We read of the Spirit there in verse 29. The short answer is that he spoke to Philip. He spoke to the preacher. But let's put it in the negative and, and raise the question this way. What did the Holy Spirit not do? What did he not do? The answer is he did nothing to the man to be converted. Now, I'm not minimizing the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't misunderstand me. But he did nothing to the man to be converted. He did not go to him like the angel. He did not speak to him. He did not give him a vision or a dream. He made no contact whatsoever with the man that needs salvation. Not at all. Instead, he went to the preacher. And he had a very brief message for him that we'll look at here. Uh, in just a moment. Why didn't he go directly to the man to be converted? Now, brethren, listen to this. We have people today who preach and believe in what they call the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. It's a very popular belief. And there are people who believe that when God sets, to, sets out to save sinners, that he operates apart from this word. 
in their salvation. He does not. I grew up in churches like this when I was a boy. I wasn't raised in the church. I was raised in several different denominations. And let me tell you a little bit about the experience I had because I would sit and listen to preachers talk for about an hour and say nothing. They would tell personal experiences and stories and such things. And then when they would get through speaking, all of a sudden they'd have their appeal for people to be saved. And they'd pray for the Holy Spirit to come down and enter into the hearts of people and convert them directly that way apart from the Word. What they didn't understand was if they had preached the Word, the Holy Spirit would have operated because He operates through this Word in conversion. That's what He does. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we, we had this idea of a direct operation of the Spirit that He would convert folks that way. There are a lot of people today who believe that. Years ago, I went to a Memorial Day service up, up near Huntsville, uh, out on a, a little community called Bohannon Mountain up there. There's a little country church building. There's a cemetery next to it. And every uh, Memorial season in, in May, whenever it occurs, they have several guest speakers come in on a Sunday afternoon, and they, they invite several different churches to come speak. They have singing. And uh, people decorate graves and such things as this. It's just a memorial service. Someone asked me one Sunday to represent the Church of Christ, and so I went out to that little country building that afternoon to speak to the people. They gave you a speaking role, and uh, never put a time limit on it, and that suited me good. So anyway, a fellow got up in front of me to speak, and he was, uh, he was a fellow that believed the Holy Spirit guided him apart from the Word, and he just took his Bible, and he just laid it down there on the podium, and he said, folks, uh, this is just a dead letter. And he said, I'm just going to let the Lord lead today, whatever He lays on my heart. That's what I'll say to you today. I wish you could have heard what he accused the Lord of. His lesson made no sense. He had no lesson. He had no lesson plan. He had no, he had no thoughts or outlines or anything. He just got up, and whatever came to his mind, he just seemed to speak it, and then he blamed that on the Holy Spirit. It was unintelligible. There was no message in it when he got through. And that really galled at me that he would get up and talk about this as a dead letter. And I'm sorry it was my turn to speak, but I got up behind him. And I said, friends, uh, I'm just going to lay what the, uh, say to you today what the Lord lays on my heart. I'm just going to let the Spirit lead through this Word. Because Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are Spirit and they are life. That is living. And then in 1 Peter 1, Peter talks about how we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So I said, I'm going to let the Spirit lead. Now, I had prepared a, a lesson since it was Memorial Day and since they were decorating graves. The resurrection, of course, would be prominent maybe in people's minds because of the death of their loved ones. And I chose that day to speak on the resurrection of Jesus, evidence why He rose from the dead, why we can trust the records and the Scriptures that He lives, because I thought that would be appropriate to the occasion, and I delivered that message. Because the Holy Spirit had given me that message through this Word, and that's what I preached. You see, the Spirit operates through this Word. He's not operating apart from it. 
I went to study with a man one time over around Alpena. As I walked in his door, he said, Pat, the Lord spoke to me last night about you. And he told me this and he told me that. I said, you know, the Lord spoke to me too and he told me he didn't tell you that. You see, my revelation was as good as his. How do we know when the Lord speaks? We have the ability to see when it comes from God, don't we? Through the Word. That's how we test people. That's how John said, try the spirits, whether they are of God, see. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So the Spirit then did not go to the man to be converted in this story because the Spirit operates through the Word. And that's why Jesus said, go teach all nations. Go preach the gospel to every creature, see. Because that's how people are saved. The Spirit's not going to go do that directly. If the Spirit operates directly, friends, apart from the Word of God, then He should have left this preacher alone up here in Samaria and just gone directly to the man to be converted and enter silently into him and do his mysterious work within this man's heart and impart miraculously faith to him and induce repentance in him and lead him to uh, the knowledge of, of obeying the Lord in baptism. He could have done that directly if that's how he operates, but he doesn't. Let's notice in Scripture why the Spirit went to the preacher, not the man to be converted. Ephesians 6 and 17, these are on the back there if you want to read there. Paul said, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word's called the Spirit's sword, isn't it? In Hebrews 4 verse 12, the Bible says, for the Word of God is quick, that means living, quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That word is the Spirit's sword. That's what he pricks our heart with. That's why the Bible says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The Spirit imparts faith by this word. See, The Spirit through this word induces us to repent. How? Because we preach to people and warn them of God's judgment one day the severity of God, and then we tell them of God's love and His goodness when we tell them about the love of God in sending Jesus to this earth. And so the goodness of God, said Paul in Romans 2 and 4, leadeth thee to repentance. When we see the goodness of God coupled with the severity of God, the judgments of God, then we are induced to repent. That produces in us godly sorrow for the things that we've done, and godly sorrow, the Bible says, works repentance. That is all brought about, you see, through the preaching of the Word. And so it's the sword of the Spirit. Now I'm not telling you this morning that the Word is the Spirit. It is not. It is the sword. It's the instrument that the Spirit uses to operate on our hearts. Just like a surgeon, when he, when he operates upon someone, has, a, has an instrument called a scalpel. And he, he takes this and he makes his incision. He doesn't operate directly by... By, hope, by tearing her flesh open. Doesn't try that. He takes this instrument, and it's the doctor still doing the operation. He's just using an instrument. In like manner, when the Spirit operates on us, He's using an instrument. It's still the Holy Spirit. He's just using the instrument of God's Word to get into our hearts and our minds, impart faith, and bring about a change in our life and induce us to repent and lead us to salvation. It's his sword. 
First Corinthians 4, 15. Let me give you some examples of this now. As you and I are begotten and as we're born again, Paul established the church at Corinth. He labored there 18 months on his second missionary journey. And uh, in laboring there, Paul was really their spiritual father. And he tells them here in 1 Corinthians 4.15, Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So he says he begat them through the gospel. See that? If you will think for just a minute, let my left hand represent the heart of man, my right hand the Holy Spirit. We'd all agree that for a person to be saved, the Spirit, represented by this hand, has got to operate on the heart of man some way. He can do that one of two ways. He can operate directly, like this, or he can operate indirectly through the medium of God's Word and strike our hearts that way, see. And that's what Paul just said in 1 Corinthians 4.15 about the Word. Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. See what the Spirit uses? Now look at James 1 and 18. James said, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. There it is again. He uses the word of truth, see. Peter puts it more plainly than anyone. 1 Peter 1, 22-23. Peter said, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Look at that again. Notice how he connects the truth and the Spirit here. Seeing you purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. See how the Spirit uses the word of truth here, see. So this is why the Spirit then never went to the man to be converted. Instead, he went to the preacher. Because Philip got down here to the road, the angel sent him down to this road, and when he arrives, what's he to do? The angel never told him. He just said, go Go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. He arose and went. He gets here. Now what? Doesn't know. But God's timing is impeccable because he looks up and he sees a chariot coming down the road. And um, then the Holy Spirit speaks in verse 29. The Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. That was the words of the Holy Spirit to the preacher. He never went to the man to be converted. Instead, he told the preacher, go near and join yourself to this chariot. You see, the work of the Spirit here on the preacher is much like the angel, to put Philip in contact with the man to be converted. And when the Spirit ended his direct work right here, the man to be converted has not been touched. He doesn't know that an angel spoken to a preacher. He doesn't know the Holy Spirit just spoke to him. He's just headed back to Ethiopia because he's been up here at Jerusalem worshiping, see. Doesn't even know this happened. And that ends the direct work of the Spirit right there in the conversion. And when it ends, the man to be converted has never been touched yet. Third question. What did the preacher do? What was the role of Philip the evangelist here in this man's conversion? The short answer is he preached Jesus. And I want to talk to you about that for just a minute. Uh, but first I want to notice something. This man to be converted is, 
is quite interesting. He's an officer of state. He is the treasurer for a queen down in Ethiopia. If you're familiar with Ethiopia, it's down below Egypt on the African continent. And this man is a believer in God, a worshiper of God. But evidently, he's sensed some guilt. He's got great guilt, maybe over his sins. Because he's, he's traveling out of Ethiopia in a chariot all the way up here to Jerusalem just to worship. And I would imagine up there, he's going to have animal sacrifices offered to try to get rid of his sins. Likely his conscience is bothering him terribly. And Jerusalem, he knows, is the place that this is offered. There's where the priests make the sacrifices. There's where God has put his name there at that temple. You see, this is all he knows. And I don't know what his rate of speed is. He may have been making four to five miles an hour, if you can imagine that. Can you imagine traveling hundreds of miles at four or five miles an hour just to worship God? We have trouble getting people to come to a nice building in a comfortable automobile, don't we? Look at what this man did. And he's an officer of state. And he's been up there to Jerusalem to worship, and now he's returning back home. And what's he doing? Well, he's sure not wasting time. He's reading Scripture. And I find that astounding because this fellow is a treasurer for a queen. He would be the equivalent of a presidential cabinet officer here in our country. Let's say the Secretary of the Treasury. So just think of him as the Secretary of the Treasury here in America. He has the charge of her treasure. And he's sitting there reading Scripture. How many people do you know that hold high office? Do you suppose read and study a lot of Scripture? How many of them would ride a chariot four or five miles an hour, hundreds of miles to worship? This man did. And it's incredible because he holds a high office. And people in high office don't do this. 1 Corinthians 1 and 26 there on the back. Paul said, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Just look around the church, anywhere, any congregation. How many people do you see that hold high office? How many congressmen and senators? How many CEOs of corporations? Many times these are people that had rather rule others than to be ruled by Christ. And you don't see them much among God's people attending to religious things. This man is. This is an incredible man right here. And that's the first thing I wanted to mention about him. He's riding along and he's reading scripture. And brethren, he's reading the, the, the best scripture in, in the Bible he could be reading at this time. He's reading Isaiah chapter 53. And that whole chapter is a prophecy about Jesus. That's exactly what he needs to be reading. And that's where Philip found him. When, he, when he's told by the Spirit, go near and join thyself to this chariot, the Bible says that Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah. And he said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. So he's having trouble understanding the text of Isaiah. So Philip gets in the chariot and it moves on down the road. In verse 32 and 33, we read this in Acts 8. The place of the scripture which he read was this. Here's what he was reading. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. That's out of Isaiah 53. Now, I put the text there on the back side of Isaiah 53 for us, and I don't, I'm not going to read those 12 verses there. Maybe Let's look maybe at the first six and just notice something here. Isaiah wrote this about 712 years before Christ. And he said, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is, of the, who, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, the, the, the Ethiopian man's been reading this. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up him, grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's talking about Jesus. And he pictures the Jewish nation here as, a, as just a dry piece of ground. All of us have seen ground in the summer that dries out and just cracks open. This is a picture of the Jewish people. They are dead, dried up spiritually. And then he, he sees a root, like a, a little sprout, a root out of a dry ground springs up. Here is life in the midst of all this deadness. This is the Christ, the Messiah, this green, tender little plant. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, he says, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what he's been reading, and now he comes to the next part, verse 7 and 8 in Isaiah, which in the New Testament here in Acts 8, 32, 33, says this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened it not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now he's just been reading this, and he asked Philip, Of whom speaketh the prophet this? Who's Isaiah talking about? Who's he referring to that was led as a sheep to the slaughter? and like a lamb dumb before his shears didn't open his mouth. Who is this that's borne griefs and carried our sorrows? Who's Isaiah talking about, him himself or some other man? That's what he wants to know. He just can't understand what he's reading. And Philip is emphatically a gospel preacher. He didn't take time to talk politics with this man. You've got to love Philip. He had a message there, and he was there to give it. And he didn't try to impress the Ethiopian man by talking to him about affairs of state, what he might know about government or had heard. He doesn't get in that, that kind of conversation to make an impression. He has this message to deliver. And when the man says, who's Isaiah talking about? Who's he referring to, himself or some other man? Verse 35 tells us that Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. Would you like to know what he preached? That's all it says. It just says he preached unto him Jesus. What do you preach when you preach Jesus? 
Do you get up and say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? That's not preaching Jesus. What if I were preaching George Washington? I'd tell you about George. <laughs> I might tell you who his parents were or where he was born. I might tell you about his education, some early things in his life, what he accomplished as a man, perhaps how he died, where he might be buried. I'd tell you all about George Washington. And when you preach about Jesus, you tell all about Jesus. And Philip knew how to do that. You see, we read in Acts 8 and 5 that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. See, he knew how to do that. The Bible said in Acts 8 and 12, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. He knew about the kingdom. He knew about the name of Christ, the authority of Christ. These are things you preach. And so he knew exactly how to preach Christ unto this man. And incidentally, if we wonder what do you preach when you preach Jesus, what do you preach when you preach Christ? I don't know of any better way to know that than to go back to Acts 2 when Jesus was first preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. If you really want to know what we should be preaching when we preach Jesus, here it is. In Acts 2 verse 22, Peter said, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. The first thing Peter preached when he preached Christ was the life and miracles of Jesus, even before he preached the cross. Before he preached the Lord's death, Peter preached the miracles of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that in verse 22? Did you ever notice in Acts 10 around verse 38 when he first preached at the house of Cornelius and took the gospel to us Gentiles, the first thing he preached there were the miracles of Christ before he ever preached his death. Why would you start off preaching the miracles of Jesus? Because those are the things that show him to be the Son of God, that prove who he is. We wouldn't believe in Jesus without these miracles. And so when we open our, our New Testaments and we start reading where the Lord took, took uh, what, five loaves and two fishes and blessed it and, and multiplied it and fed 5,000 people and took up 12 baskets full of the fragments more than he even started with to begin with and fed 5,000 people. That's incredible. And when people saw these miracles and when we read them, we understand this man is different. This is the most incredible person that's ever been on earth. We come to understand that quickly. When we turn our New Testaments open and we read where Jesus on the Sea of Galilee was being tossed about by waves and wind and he spoke to the elements and said, Peace! Be still. And the sea became glass and the wind calmed. That's incredible. When we open the scriptures and we see him cleansing lepers and casting out devils, even raising the dead, that all of these things are there to convince us that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Because you see, beloved, God does not give power like this to imposters. Even Nicodemus in John 3 said, We know thou art a teacher come from God. No man can do these miracles that thou doest 
except God be with him. So when Peter and others preach Christ, they start out with these miracles because they show him to be the Son of God. And when, when you get to the death of Jesus on the cross, then you've got the death of the Son of God. That gives that death more meaning. And the blood that he shed, the life of the Son of God given for us has great significance. And so you establish who Jesus is. And that's what, that's what Philip would do. This is what Peter did. He said he was a man of God approved by miracles and wonders and signs which God did for him in the midst of you. As ye yourselves also know, I'm in Acts 2.23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you've taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now he preaches the death. Whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now he brings in the resurrection. And then he'll, in verse 25, he will quote from Psalm 16, verse 8 to 11, and bring in the prophecy of Peter who predicted the resurrection of Christ a thousand years before it ever happened. David said of Christ, Thou will not leave my soul in hell or Hades, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. David predicted that the Lord's soul wouldn't be left in Hades and his body wouldn't corrupt. See? And Peter brought that in. And finally, down in verse 36, after he preaches his ascension and his coronation, he says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So you preach these things when you preach Jesus and other things as well. And then in verse 37 of Acts 2, we read that when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. There's the Holy Spirit working, see. This is the Spirit operating through the, the preached Word here. They were pricked in their heart. That means they believe, see. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we know that 3,000 people that day gladly received this word and were baptized. So Philip understood here how to preach Jesus because Peter had preached him that first day and ever since when you preach Jesus, you preach these things right here. Don't ever forget that because people need to know all about Christ. And that was the work of the preacher, was to preach Christ. The next question, what did the eunuch do? What was his role in his conversion? The answer is he confessed his faith in Christ and was baptized, but I want to look at the record there in Acts 8 and, and verse 36. Remember, he had asked to be baptized. Verse 36, after he had preached unto him Jesus, as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What did it hinder me to be baptized? See, What about me? Where did he learn about baptism? When Philip, when Philip preached Jesus. Because you preach baptism in the name of Christ for remission of sins. And he preached that to him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have known a thing about baptism. Nor requested it, see. That's the implication. So he had taught him well, hadn't he? He taught the man, and now, now he's requesting baptism. And I'm glad that Philip was there and not some of these modern-day preachers. 
You know what they would have said to the man if they were riding along with him and he asked for baptism? They might have said, well, do you have an experience of salvation? Have you been saved? Tell me about that. Because I can't baptize you till you're saved. See, Philip didn't know anything about that, that kind of thinking. Some preachers today would have said, look, I would love to baptize you, but I can't because there's no church out here in this deserted area. And so we're going to have to go to where there's a congregation and then you can get up in front of them and tell your story of how you were saved and they will vote on you. And if they judge you've had a legitimate experience of salvation, we'll baptize you. Because this is what a lot of preachers do today. They don't baptize upon the confession of faith in Christ because they believe a person has to be saved before baptism, and Philip didn't. He knew better. I read a story one time of a, a man that went to church with his wife. And uh, most people, when they baptize, the reason I'm telling you this is they baptize to put you in a church. He attended church with his wife. She was a member there. He wasn't. The reason he wasn't is you had to have an experience of salvation before you could be a member there, and he didn't have one. One Sunday morning, he got up in front of the congregation. He said, folks, I, I've got some good news. I was saved last night. He said, an angel appeared in our bedroom. And he said, the greatest feeling swept over me, and I felt the burdens of my sin lifted, and I knew I was saved right there. Man, they, they'd never heard such a story. They took a vote on him immediately. Voted him right into the church. On the way home, his wife said, honey, you lied to those people this morning, didn't you? You didn't see an angel in our bedroom. He said, no, I didn't. But he said, I had to tell them something. I had to have a story. She said, you better straighten that out tonight. So they went back to the church that, after, that evening, and the man got up in front of the congregation again. And he said, folks, I owe you an apology. I lied to you this morning. I, I didn't see an angel in the bedroom last night. I, I made that up so that you would accept me into the church. Well, they took another vote and voted him out. Kicked him out that night. He told his wife going home, he said, Honey, your church beats all I've ever seen. They vote you in for telling a lie and kick you out for telling the truth. When, when people seek to join a church and allow folks to vote on them. This is what you get. But you see, Philip didn't know any of that. He just simply asked him the divinely appointed question. He said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He made his confession, didn't he, of his faith. And upon that confession, Philip then proceeded to baptize him. And I want you to look at verse 38 with me. Now we're round on the front. If you'll come around to the third column there on the front, these last few scriptures, quickly. Look down at point four and, and see underneath it the spiritual language about baptism. I want us to look there at Acts 8, 38 that I have written out for you and some underlining done. He commanded the chariot to stand still and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The Holy Spirit's incredible. He put this in language where no one could possibly misunderstand what baptism's about, how it's administered, any such thing like it. Because we have people today that practice sprinkling of water and pouring of water, and look at the language here. Look at the pronouns. 
He says to Philip and the eunuch, they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. That's incredible language right there, isn't it? They went down. Have you ever gone into water without going down? Next time you take a bath, try to, try to go in the water. Next time you swim, try to go in the water without going down into the water. He didn't have to use the word down. He could have just said they went into the water. They went down both into the water. And then so it couldn't be misunderstood, he said it again, both. And then he named them Philip and the eunuch. Now I want you to notice something else here that the Spirit wants us to know. He baptized him. When you baptize, you baptize people, the person. Why is that important? Because when you sprinkle, you sprinkle water. You don't sprinkle people. That's kind of fatal, isn't it? I'd hate to be sprinkled. That means to scatter in drops. You know, I don't want that. When you pour, you pour water. So obviously he didn't sprinkle or pour because he baptized him, the person, not the element, not water. See, That means he immersed him. Because you don't immerse water, you immerse people. And that explains why they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him, see. So the Spirit doesn't want us to misunderstand here. That's the work then of the, of the man to be converted. He heard the gospel, believed it, repented, made his confession of Christ, and obeyed the Lord in baptism. That leaves one final thing, we'll wrap it up. And that is, what did the Lord do? Someone says, well, I don't read much about the Lord in this story. The Lord appears in the very first verse. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip. It's the Lord that sent the angel. He's been involved in this story all along. And now we raise the question then, when the man did all of this, what did the Lord do for him? And I want to suggest three things. This eunuch had heard the gospel. He had believed, he had repented, he had confessed his faith in Christ. He had been baptized and uh, he, he went through that process to be saved, and that's what the Lord did for him. The Lord did three main things. The Lord saved him. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And this man believed, and he was baptized, he was saved. The second thing Christ did for him is give him the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift. And that's Acts 2.38. Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And Paul said here in Romans 8 and 9, Ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So this man was given the Spirit. Now that doesn't mean he talked in tongues. Doesn't mean he could heal doesn't mean he could work miracles. He was given the Holy Spirit as a gift. And that Spirit, folks, is in us for several reasons. Number one, to seal us as belonging to God, legitimate sons and daughters. 
Number two, he is the earnest of our inheritance. He is the down payment of everything God will ultimately give us as heirs. God's guarantee, just like you put earnest money down on a piece of property when you buy it, God gives us the earnest of the Spirit. It's His guarantee. I will ultimately redeem your body as I have your soul, and I'll give you this inheritance. He is the earnest of that inheritance, the guarantee. Three, He makes intercession for us, according to Paul in Romans 8. He makes intercession to, uh, to God, not to us, to God for us, with groanings which cannot be uttered. There are a lot of things the Spirit does in that sense. But he's not going to give us all these miraculous abilities. That's not, that's not what was promised in Acts 2.38. The third thing the Lord did, he added this man to the church. Now there is no church right here in the wilderness. This is a deserted area. There's no congregation here. And that tells us that when we become a member of the church, we don't join. We're not, we're not baptized into a local congregation of some kind but into this worldwide one body. And then anywhere we're go, we're, we go, we're a member of that church. And we note there in Acts 2.41, well, on the Pentecost day, they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Verse 47 in Acts 2, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. We cannot join the Lord's church. We simply obey the gospel to be saved, and when we do that, automatically after being saved, God adds us to the church. These things the Lord did for this man. And what's the last thing that we read of this man from Ethiopia? Verse 39, when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And why wouldn't he rejoice? When he first met Philip, he didn't know who Jesus was. He likely needed, uh, he needed something to pay his sin debt. He had been to Jerusalem where animal sacrifices likely had been made for his sins. But the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take the sin away. Now on the way back, as he reads Isaiah, he reads of a man that's like a sheep led to the slaughter, a sin bearer, the true Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Philip's made him understand who that is, who's I, who Isaiah's talking about, and now he's found Jesus Christ. Now he's found a remedy for his sins. And he's come to believe in Christ and turn from sin and confess his faith in him and obey his Lord in baptism. Why wouldn't he rejoice? He's had his sins forgiven. He's been given the gift of God's Spirit. He's been added to the church. And as he goes back to Ethiopia, the last thing we read about him, he went on his way rejoicing. I love that ending. Anyone here today that hasn't received this yet can leave here today rejoicing. Amen. You can. You can have your sins forgiven. Everything you've ever thought, said, or done, gone. Paid for by Jesus Christ where you won't have to one day. And He'll give you the Spirit as a gift. And He'll write your name in the book of life. He'll add you to His church, the called out.
And you can go on your way rejoicing just like this man. If you need Jesus today, we're not in a hurry. If that's the need of your soul, why don't you come forward and make that known? Confess your faith in the one that died for you and rose again. And obey him in baptism. And if you're here today and you've got problems and burdens, it doesn't have to be sin. You just need, you just need God's people. Uh, you're certainly in our hearts and our minds. And we'd love to minister to you if we can help you in some way. If you'll just come forward on the front as we rise and sing the song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.